All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. This is your first time here. We are glad for you to join us. And again, just want to reiterate, we hope you could join us in this year of prayer and our prayer gatherings. Sorry, begin starting next week. It's just going to be a space for our church to commit and begin this whole year of prayer. So just make sure you're, if you could join us, we'd love to have you there. Also, Bible reading plan. Hope you're still a part of that. And very appropriate, if you, are, if you have been catching up with us, we are currently reading through Exodus and coincidentally, we are also beginning a sermon series today through the book of Exodus as well. We are going through the first half of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, verse 18. And just want to briefly explain why are we going through this particular book. Uh, one reason that we actually are is because our goal as a church that we talk in our pastoral staff is we hope to go through the entire, what's known as the Torah. If you're unfamiliar with that term, these are the first five books in the Bible where it is uh, five books telling one story. And for the past few years, we've actually been going through Genesis chapter 1 to 50, and we went through the entire book of Genesis. And Exodus is part two of the Torah story. Think of Lord of the Rings. If Genesis was Fellowship of the Rings, Exodus is the Two Towers. And so we want to continue on the story that we began. And so what a proper way to go through Exodus after going through Genesis. Also, uh, we also know Exodus, it is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. I mean, Prince of Egypt, have you guys ever watched that movie before? Ten Commandments, I think there's another one that's recent as well that happened a few years ago. There's always, every few decades, a new movie about this book. I don't see many movies about Genesis, I don't see many movies about Malachi, but Exodus just captures our imagination because there's so many memorable stories that even if you didn't grow up in the church, you're probably familiar with the stories in Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. We are very familiar with these stories. And yet, what do all these stories mean? What's the meaning of all these events? And I feel like we're less clear about how to make sense of putting those stories together. And yet, at the same time, we do know the Bible says these stories matter because of any story in the Bible, the most repeated story without question is the story of Exodus. In the poetic books, in the prophecies, in the New Testament, they all constantly refer back to Exodus because Exodus is something that every reader is meant to understand in order to fully understand the story of the Bible. If you ever saw a movie and you saw a scene where somebody says, no, I am your father, Everybody knows where that comes from. It comes from Star Wars. It's just a cultural reference point where if you understand and saw Star Wars, that scene makes sense. That's kind of how the Bible functions. It constantly alludes back to Exodus because Exodus is something that is sprinkled throughout the Bible. You won't fully understand the story of the Bible unless you have an understanding of Exodus. And so, with that being said, we're going to go through this book because Exodus, it's not just a story for the nation of Israel, but it is a story for everyone who meets the God in Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have your programs, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1, the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 1. We're going to go all the way down to verse 14, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 2 and look at verses 23 to 25. And here at our church, what we like to do is when we read the scriptures, we believe God is alive and speaks to us. So can we all rise together? I'm going to read this starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. 
But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Then skipping over to chapter 2, verse 23. And after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of their difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we lift up this morning to you. We pray your spirit could just be present with us, and for us, O Lord, to hear you speak through your word at this time. Speak to us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So to begin this series, I just want to offer us a quick thought experiment, if you don't mind humoring me for about a few few seconds. If you were to imagine God, to think of the word God, and if you were to imagine what God looks like, what image comes to mind? Just think about God, and just think what images pop up in your brain as you try to imagine what God looks like. Just going to pause for like five seconds for this. What came to mind? What images come to mind? Was it an old man with a white beard just sitting down? Was it this energy force where you can't really see anybody? It's just like these sparkly, dusty things kind of moving the air, kind of going back and forth. You go back to your childhood where all those coloring books of Bible stories and this old buff man just kind of standing there. Is that kind of your image of God? What do you imagine God is like? What does he look like? What's his posture? What's his personality? Did anybody imagine God smiling? Did anybody have an image of a smiling God? Or was he stern like your Asian dad? Is it a stern face that's there? Does he seem like somebody who's really close to you? Or is he someone who's super far away, just distant and you can't even see him? Is this God somebody who seems joyful and happy that you're even thinking about him? Or is there a sense of this uptightness and this frown of disapproval what's going on? The reason why I ask this question is because there's an interesting quote by A.W. Tozer where he says, this question is so important because without knowing it, it shapes everything about you. A.W. Tozer, he says it like this, quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. What Tozer is saying is what matters most isn't what you believe, that isn't the fact that you believe in God. That's not what's most important. What do you imagine about this God? That's the most important thing. And Tozer takes it so far to say, and that will shape the way you live your life. A few examples of this. The ISIS terrorist who beheads infidels as an act of jihad. Why does he do what he does? The Hindu who sacrifices goats to Shiva. Why does they do what they do? 
The peace activists who is protesting war because of this belief we are to love our enemies. The prosperity preacher who drives a Hummer to church every single Sunday because they believe God's blessing is meant to be expressed in this way. The gay singer who thanks God at the Grammys for their award because they believe in unconditional love that God offers in the Bible. The Catholic nun who gives up the normal life that she was living to live a life of poverty because she believes that God is there for the oppressed. All these different individuals, they do what they do and they live the way that they live, not simply because they believe in God, but what they believe about that God, how they believe that God, what this God that they imagine is like. And so the main question we should actually ask ourselves in the church is, which I think for a lot of us here, it's not whether God exists or not. I feel like there's some of us who struggle with that, but most of us, it's like, okay, there is some type of God who's out there, but what is this God like? Who is he? How does he function? And here's where we get really problematic, because when you answer that question, our God, he tends to look strangely familiar. There's a, prof- a seminary professor, his name is Scott McKnight, And he says every semester with the seminary students, he always does two surveys in the very beginning. The first survey is a set of questions where he has all his seminary students. What do you like? What do you dislike? Who do you like? What type of people do you you not like? What what disgusts you? What makes gives you pleasure? And he, they answer those questions. Then he gives a second set of questions going, now what does God like? What do you think God dislikes? What disgusts him? Who does he he like? What, What makes him actually get joy? And he says, without fail, 90% of the answers are exactly the same. What you like is what your God likes. The people that you like are the people that, sure, of course God likes. The people you don't like, oh, God doesn't like those people. And we end up, without knowing it, believing in a God that we created in our own image. But if there is a God, if there is a God, and if this God reveals himself to us, Wouldn't this God be different than what we expect? Shouldn't this God surprise us? Shouldn't this God look a little bit different than the normal paradigm that we would imagine God looking like? This is what the story of Exodus is all about. The book of Exodus, it is a story not just about these miraculous events, but if I were to summarize in a very simple phrase what Exodus is, Exodus is a story about God revealing who he is and what he's like. That is like the the North Star of how to understand the book of Exodus. Because there's a lot of stuff going on in Exodus. Some stuff familiar, some stuff weird. If you, there's actually like five acts in Exodus of how you could break it down. The first act is Exodus chapter one to four, where it's about Israel being enslaved under Pharaoh. And then in chapter five, or chapter 15, it's the 10 plagues in the Red Sea. And then chapter 16 to 18, it's about the grumbling in the wilderness. Chapter 19 and 31 is the covenant at Sinai. And in chapter 32 to 40, when Exodus ends, is about Israel's rebellion and the building of the tabernacle. And sometimes you see these stories, they make sense. Again, some of them are strange, but how does it all fit together? They're all there for a reason. All together, what these different acts do is they show and reveal who God is and what this God is like. And that's why the sermon series is titled, This Is Our God. Many of you believe in God, But I'm curious if all of you know what this God is like. You believe in God, and yet he's so boring to you. You can't even spend 10 minutes. We made the simplest prayer plan for our church. 10 minutes a day just spend with God, and it is so hard for us. And it makes us question, well, do you know who this God is? Well, for some of us here, you follow God. You say, of course I follow God. 
And yet your life shows the complete opposite. You follow yourself. You will do what you do even if God wasn't there. Do you really know who this God is? Or some of you, you felt, of course I believe God forgives me of my sins. And yet here you are filled with so much shame, so much guilt, hiding from people all the time. And because a lot of us here, we think we know who God is, and yet in reality, we're actually very unfamiliar with him. And so in the words of the modern prophet Jay-Z, Exodus is a story where God is saying, allow me to reintroduce myself. He's going to introduce himself to you. He wants you to know who he is. And we're going to look at Exodus and we're going to find out three things about God that he's going to constantly just pound over and over again about who this God is. Number one, Exodus shows us that we have a God who is faithful to his promises. Secondly, we have a God who rescues his people from slavery. And lastly, we have a God who has a name. He's faithful to his promises, rescues his people from slavery, and he has a name. First, we have a God who is faithful to his promises. Anytime I watch any movie, anytime I watch any TV show, I give it 15 minutes. It has 15 minutes to get my attention. And if I'm not interested in 15 minutes, I'm done. Because I'm not going to waste my time, two hours of my day, watching a movie that's not good. So it has 15 minutes to show me what it's about. If Exodus, this book, was a movie that was played out the way exactly it's played out, I would be done. Look how this movie, this movie begins. It is so boring. Look at the verses. Look at verse 1 to 5. Let's read it together. Get ready to be bored. Get ready. Here it is, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. This is why Bible reading plans don't work. You stop right here. It's like, man, names. Genealogy is the terminology that's constantly used. Why would the book of Exodus, the book that's most repeated in the Bible, why does it start this way? Because even though you and I think it's boring, fans of the Bible, people who know the story of God, they're like, dude, this is the good stuff. You know why? This is like when you watch Star Wars. You know how every Star Wars opens, right? After the music, what happens, Star Wars fans? The opening crawl. It lets you know this is what happened. Again, the casuals are so bored during this time, but all the fans are like, tell me more. Like, I want to see this. This is really important. Because Star Wars, what this thing does is it tells us what happened in the previous movie and where we are now. It is filling the gap between these stories because Star Wars is not just a movie. It's an epic saga. It is this huge story that's bigger than just entertainment. And that's kind of what Exodus is doing. It's not just this isolated story. It is part of an epic saga where it is connected to a previous story in Genesis. And it goes all the way to Deuteronomy, this Torah story that's there. And so what this opening is trying to tell us in Exodus is it's trying to connect us back to Genesis. It's letting us know, hey, since Genesis, this is where we're at. So very briefly, to understand Exodus, we have to kind of remember, well, what happened in Genesis? And Genesis, if you're familiar with that book... It is a book in the Bible that answers all of today's modern big questions. Who are you? Why are you, why are you here? Who created you? And Genesis 1 lets us know from the very beginning. God created human beings, that's the claim of Genesis, and he created human beings in his image to partner with him for the flourishing of the world. That is the purpose of humanity in a nutshell according to Genesis. Genesis 1 verse 28 says it like this. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The first human beings, God gives them this charge. Go 
partner with me in flourishing this world, filling it, subduing it, be fruitful, and multiply. And if you're familiar with the Genesis story, you'll know that they miserably failed at this. In the, in the Genesis story, human beings, the whole idea is that we are unable to fulfill God's purpose for us because sin enters into this world and creation just spirals downward. Things got so bad, in fact, that God, he had to send a flood to recreate the world and start over with one family, Noah's family. And if you are familiar with that story, and he, everyone's gone, now it's just one family, and God says, okay, now that the flood is gone, here's what you're to do. Same command, Genesis 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Same charge, same purpose, go partner with me, make sure that the world is flourishing. And of course, the same thing. They are unable to do it. It's the same outcome because it's the same problem like Adam and Eve. Sin is present, but creation spirals out of control. Everything changes, though, when God chooses another family, the family of Abraham, but with one difference. Instead of giving Abraham a command, God gives him a promise. And it's really interesting. Look at Genesis 17. He says the same thing. It's similar language. It says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will, oh, there it is, multiply you greatly. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. No longer a command, a promise. Because you can't do it. You can't live according to God's purposes. You cannot flourish on your own. There's something called sin that stops us. And so God makes a promise where I will do what you cannot do. I will make you flourish in ways that you cannot flourish. And that's how the story of Genesis sets us up. And the rest of Genesis, it's how God promised transfers from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to his family. And it stops. And now, in between Genesis and Exodus, 400 years have passed. All that family that God promised to, they all passed away. And the big question is, well, what happened? Where is the status of the family now? Where is the status of God's promise? And look at verse 6 to 7 with me. Look what it says in Exodus. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites, they were fruitful. And they increased rapidly. And they multiplied, oh, key language there, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Exodus is purposely using Genesis language here to let us know that promise, that original design that human beings were made for, it's finally happening. It never happened in Genesis because we kept messing up, but it is finally happening. Why? Not because Israel is super faithful, not because this group of people, they're super powerful. They have a God who is faithful to his promises. He is doing what he promised 400 years ago to their first ancestor, what they cannot do for themselves to make them flourish in the world in the way they are originally meant to flourish. God is a God who's faithful to his promise. In fact, the word promise, there's actually a, a, a word that's going to be used for that word. It's not promise in the Bible. It's a word covenant that's going to be popped up all the time. This word covenant, a very simple definition, is a commitment you make to somebody, not because of them, but because of you. It's not based on who they are. It's actually based on who you are. You are faithful to your marriage, not because of primarily your spouse, because if that was the reason, you might leave your spouse many, many times because they are not somebody who's always lovable. They are not somebody you always love. They're not somebody who comes off as someone who's worth committing to. And yet you make a covenant with them because you are someone who's going to commit to them. 
You are someone, despite who they are, you are still with them. And that's what makes love last. That's who God is. God makes a covenant with people, not based on who they are, but based on who he is. And even though we've experienced and seen so many people break their covenant promises in our lives, Exodus makes this claim from the very beginning, that's not God. This God is different. He makes a covenant promise and he keeps it, not because of you, but because of him. Why is this so important for us to know? Back then, it was so important because there were so many gods out there. There are so many gods who wanted your devotion, your allegiance. In the Old Testament, it was the god of Baal, where it's like, if you want good flocks, make sure, and good weather, make sure you worship me. It's the god of Asherah, where it's like, if you want to have babies and fertility, make sure you worship me. In the first century in Jesus' time, if you wanted beauty, you have to bow the knees of Aphrodite, say, make me beautiful and youthful. If you wanted money, you bow your knees at the god of Artemis and say, make me successful and rich. And today that seems so primitive, and yet we worship gods as well too. There's many things out there that promises if you devote yourself to that, you will get what you want. And all the time, we are so tempted to give ourselves to that. One pastor said, the gods of today, you could summarize it in two words. It's status and stuff. We all want the blue check marks. We all want the names. So our Instagram account that says how these followers were people of repute. Or we want the latest technology that's there. Because we think it's going to give us something that we really want. And we think we'll be happy. It makes promises to us. I mean, think about, like, if you grew up in an immigrant home, what were, like, the two jobs your parents wanted you to have? If you're like mine, a lawyer or a doctor. And it wasn't to help people. It wasn't even for the money. Because you made it. If you're a lawyer or if you're a doctor. I know plenty of lawyers. I know plenty of doctors. And they tell me all the time, not worth it. It's not worth the status. In fact, it's like so much labor. So much work. And I, I ask them all the time, I said, what's it like? Because they, they fulfilled the, the Asian dream. Like, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer. And like, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't do this. But I have to now, because I have debt, and I have to pay it back. Again, not to discount that role, but in other words, it's not what we think. It's not what we think a lot of times. A lot of us here, we try to collect money and say, you know, I'm going to save up, and what I'm going to do is collect experiences. It's not about my career. It's about like, traveling and going to different countries that are out there, or it's about making sure I purchase a home, and once I get a home, I'm all good. But, you know, again, talk to people who are older. I have yet to meet somebody going, dude, I'm so happy these days. You know why? Five years ago, I bought a home, and this home is just so nice. It's still nice, and I'm just so happy. I have yet to meet anybody who said that. I have yet to meet anybody who said, you know why my life is so good now? Three years ago, I wanted this trip to Cabo, and it was just like the best trip. And I'm just like riding off of those promises. It's like, nobody feels that way. And yet all of us, you're in the midpoint of just chasing after that because you believe that there is something that you just pour yourself into, it's gonna bring something to your life. It's gonna make you feel a certain way, whether it be status or stuff or whatever it might be. And all of us have a tendency to do that. And that's why all of us, there's something missing, especially as you get older. I mean, you know what, this, is, this sound, might sound mean, but you wanna know who's younger in this church and who's older? Look how happy they are. Just like gauge their vibes. If you gauge a happy vibe, it's like, oh, you're probably in college. That was a beautiful time. Like it's just this happy vibe that's there. Versus if you gauge like this like darkness, it's like, ooh, older. Probably a little bit older. You know why? Because a lot of us, who are older, we believed in those promises. Yeah, we believed if I got the house, if I got that, if the family, I'd be super happy. And now you're seeing us in our negative vibes, a life of unfulfilled promises from these false gods. 
We gave ourselves to our jobs, we gave ourselves to our mortgage, we gave ourselves to the things that you're chasing in your 20s, and now in our 30s and 40s, we're like, it's not that great. It's not that great. But all of us right now, we have something like that. If you've been at our church for more than two years, you've heard this quote before. If you haven't been at our church before, I get ready to get blown away. David Foster Wallace, I just love this quote that he gives. He's not a Christian. And he says, whether you're a Christian or not, you worship something. You worship something. He says it like this, quote, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. But pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. He goes on, worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found. We all worship something. We all believe it's gonna give us what we want, and all of us, for some reason, we still feel very empty. Why? Because we believe in these gods who offer us these promises and we devote ourselves to them, and they do not deliver. They do not fulfill. And that's where the story of Exodus tells us, but there is a God, where if you believe in him, he's the one God who is faithful to his promises. Every other God, when you believe in them, the promise seems so clear in the beginning, and it just fades away and you just get bitter about life. Versus the God of Exodus, the promises seem very unclear in the beginning, but as you keep living, it gets clearer and clearer. Imagine if you're that person, as you get older and older, you're not getting more and more bitter because your promises are fading that you believe in. Imagine you're that old person, you're becoming more joyful, more peaceful, more hopeful, because the promises that you were told, they're becoming more and more real. Can you imagine that in your life? That's what Exodus is saying, this is who God is. A God, as you continue to journey with them, the promises he offers are more and more real. And that's why he calls us to give us to follow him, to give your heart to this God, because he will answer not your strongest desires, but he'll give you your deepest desires. Tim Keller, he says it like this, quote, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross he is the only Lord if, who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. And so, quick question, who do you worship right now? Who do you worship? What captures your heart? What are you pouring all of your energy into? Or if that's a hard question to ask, what are you scared of? What freaks you out if you were to lose this in your life right now? It's probably a good thing, it's probably something that everyone else aspires and respects about you, and yet you know it's becoming a destructive thing, a God thing, when it is making you way more anxious and worried than you should be. That's when you have a God who's not delivering his promises. And the story of Exodus invites you, let go of those gods, come to the God who's able to be faithful to all his promises. That's the first thing that Exodus reveals. God, God is faithful to his promises. Second, this is a God who rescues his people from slavery. That's the second thing we should know about this God. In the story of Exodus, everything seems to be going well. They're flourishing, they're multiplying. But then the story makes a turn. And notice in verse 8 to 11 what happens. If you can read of me, verse 8 to 11, look what it says. It says, A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. 
He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they'll multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Here we are introduced to the antagonist of the story. Chapters 1 to 18 of Exodus, you're going to see Pharaoh show up all the time. And he's going to just be there, as, like, just causing trouble for Israel. But notice a few observations about how Pharaoh is introduced in the story. Notice Pharaoh does not have a name. It's just called Pharaoh. Scholars are trying to always figure out who is this Pharaoh. They just try to figure out, is it this Pharaoh in history that we could find out? But he's nameless because Pharaoh in the story represents more than Pharaoh. Pharaoh represents a greater evil that stands against God's people. And notice how Pharaoh is described. Look what it says in verse 10. Look what he says. He says, let's deal shrewdly with the Israelites. Do you remember a time in the Bible where people were created and they're flourishing and multiplying and getting ready to be blessed? And all of a sudden something shrewd came in and stopped all that? This sounds like the Garden of Eden. This sounds like the serpent. And that's who Pharaoh is representing. He is the seed of the serpent, bringing the same things the serpent brought to humanity, slavery and death. Slavery and death. And notice what happens where after Israel is in trouble, what do they do? They cry out to God and God hears them. Verse 23, 25. After a long time, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites, they groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out to God. And God, he heard them. And God, eventually, the rescue plan begins. Why does Exodus get shaped this way? Why does he frame it this way, the author of Exodus? And the reason why is because it's purposely trying to show Exodus is repeating the cycle of the story of Genesis. There's a common cycle that both these stories have that is actually the human cycle that we all experience in our life. And here's the cycle. It's four parts. First, it's creation. Second, it's enslavement. Third is liberation. And then fourth is renewal. And we see this happen in Genesis. We see this happen in Exodus. And we see this happening in our lives. In creation in Genesis, we see that there's Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply. Exodus, Israelites, they're being fruitful and they multiply. Enslavement, Genesis, there's the fall caused by the serpent. Exodus, it's labor caused by Pharaoh. But then we're going to see in Genesis, there's liberation, where God enters the story by talking and sending and calling Abraham. And Exodus, God enters the story by calling Moses to bring liberation to Israel. And lastly, there is renewal, where Genesis, they learn to follow God in a new way of life. And Exodus, they follow God in a new way of life. Now, what's, there's a lot of things to be said here, but let me point out one thing. Notice that the story of Exodus, it does not end at liberation. For a lot of us, especially if you watch the movies, how does Exodus end? Israel crosses the Red Sea, and it's like the end. God saved them. What a great movie. But if you know Exodus, you'll know that uh, Exodus is actually way, whoops, let me go back. Exodus is actually way more than that. It's only half the story. Crossing the Red Sea was not the end. It was actually just the halfway point. There's so much more that's going to happen because Israel, their biggest need was not just to be liberated from slavery from Pharaoh. It's not external. There's actually a greater liberation, something internal. They were slaves to Pharaoh, and yet there is something even bigger that they're slaves to, sin. And God is trying to spend the rest of the time after freeing Israel to have them live with freedom. I like the way N.T. Wright, he says something just really powerful about what the story of Exodus is about. He says, quote, There are two liberation journeys in the book of Exodus. The first is to get Israel out of slavery, and the second is to get slavery out of Israel. That's why you have more stories after the Red Sea. 
the law, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle. Because the story of Exodus, it's about a God who rescues and also teaches his people how to live in light of that rescue. And so with that being said, if I could just have a quick word for some of us. I know here in our church, we have people who are exploring Christianity. You grew up in the church, but you kind of like, yeah, things about God just didn't make sense. Things about church didn't make sense. And yet here you are and you're open and you're curious. And a lot of us who grew up in the church, we have an idea of what the story of the Bible is, which is we think, oh, the people, my, my wife who brought me here, my husband brought me here, my friend who brought me here, they're trying to tell me to read the Bible because the Bible is about believing in God and how to live a good life. And I'm going to try that with my spouse and see if this all makes sense. And I would want to challenge that a little bit, gently as possible. If you're here thinking that, just know the Bible, it actually makes a far bolder claim than that. It's actually far, saying far more than just believe in God and try to live a good life. The claim that the Bible makes is, you're not as happy as you should be. You're not as happy and as fulfilled and as joyful in life as you should be, but instead, for some reason, you're filled with a lot of fear, a lot of shame, a lot of insecurity, and it's not because of external things. We think it's because we don't have the right job, the right marriage, the right circumstances, but there's actually something deeper going on. Like Israel, there's something very internal happening. You're not a slave to Pharaoh, you're a slave to something bigger. It's called sin. It's called something where you just can't help but do what you want to do rather than what other people want to do. The people that you love, instead of serving them, you want to serve yourself. That's the sin problem that's there. And we, like Israel, we need to be rescued. Not from Pharaoh, but from ourselves. And Exodus tells us, you know how God rescues people from slavery to sin? It's actually very similar to Exodus. God has to do something. God has to enter the picture and send somebody to liberate you from your sins. And that's why if you notice, when you read the New Testament, the story of Jesus, it's not just a story about a person who lived in Palestine. There's all these Exodus imagery about Jesus. It's pretty crazy. The story of Exodus, it takes place in an oppressive rule under a Pharaoh who murders all these infants. In the Gospels, Jesus is born under the oppressive rule of Rome in the midst of the murder of all these infants. What a coincidence. Why did God do it that way? In Exodus, Israel, they go through the Red Sea and they wander the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, when he begins his ministry, he gets baptized with water and he wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. What a coincidence. Israel, they will go up a mountain to meet God and get, learn about his ways. Jesus brings his disciples up a mountain, teaches them the Sermon on the Mount about the ways of the kingdom. Israel, they are freed and passed over from death. Why? By the blood of the Lamb covering their door. Jesus, he frees his people from sin by becoming the sacrificial Lamb and becoming the door for his people. Exodus shows us what Jesus was trying to do. Jesus was not just some rabbi trying to teach us a new guru way of life. Exodus is trying to tell us that this is, Jesus is actually doing Exodus for us. The authors all saw that this is a new Exodus. And God is freeing us from something bigger than Pharaoh, bigger than our circumstances. He's freeing us from sin. And if you come to Jesus and you're covered by his blood, you can experience liberation. This is the story of the Bible. It's about liberation for people from ourselves. That's if you're exploring Christianity. This is the journey of Exodus. And if you're exploring Christianity, for some of us here, journey with us to see if this is true and what liberation looks like. Some of you, though, you're, you, you say you're a follower of Jesus. Like, you're, I, yeah, I know that. This, this sounds very familiar. That's like, 
basic gospel stuff, like, I get that. I follow Jesus. You're liberated. And yet, you're still living like a slave. You still live exactly like everybody else. You view, you view your money like a slave. I don't have a lot of money. Scarcity mentality. So you save, you save, you save. It's hard to be generous because you think like a slave. You practice sex like a slave. Your body is just, it's whatever. You give it to whoever you want. It's not something that you have to protect and value and made with dignity. It's, it's just like everybody else. Yeah, just get, what's the big deal? You practice self-esteem like a slave. Even though you say God loves you, like you, it's a lot of self-hatred, a lot of low self-esteem. Why, why, do, why are we, I thought we were free. Because you grew up your whole life like a slave. And even though Jesus forgives you for your sins, you are still living like a slave. You're still miserable like a slave. And what we need to do, what we are called to do, is not just believe in Jesus, but to follow the way of Jesus. He teaches us a new way to live, a new way to practice your money, a new way to practice your sex life, a new way to view yourself, a new way to be free. A lot of us here, we struggle with that. We really struggle with that. Let me give you an example of how we struggle with that. Um, this, is, oops, this is a list of all the New Testament descriptions of what you shouldn't do as a follower of Jesus. It's called a put off. That's a common language. Don't do this. You're just going to see this all the time. And if, conversely, this list is not over. There's also a list of what should you do as a follower of Jesus. Here's the list of all the things you should do as a follower of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at a list, I'm like, oh. This is why I don't want to be a Christian. This sounds like a bunch of do's and don'ts. Sounds super restrictive. Sounds like God's trying to tell me what to do, what not to do. And I just, you know, I just, it feels overwhelming because I fail at this. And that's just how my, my natural response to a list like this, right? And yet, we've totally missed a point if that's what we think is happening. This list is not a list of do's and don'ts. This is how you live freely. This is freedom. The left side is, this is how you used to be. You were a slave to deflect your flesh, the world, the evil one. And this, the right side, is how you live as a free person. You naturally live the left side because you grew up your whole life living this way. But what Jesus wants to teach us is a new way of true life. Because on the left side, it leads to the same destination. Low-key depression, unfulfillment, escapism, coping mechanisms. Versus the right side, when you keep at it, it is love, joy, peace, patience, Jesus, pretty much. That's when you become like Jesus. And that's what Exodus teaches us. It's not just about liberation, even though it's the starting point. It is how do you live in light of your liberation? How do you live in light of this new way? And Exodus wants to teach us this, because God... He rescues his people, not just once, but he wants you to live a rescued life. God wants to rescue his people from slavery. Lastly, the last thing we hear, we learn about God in Exodus is not only is God faithful to his promises, not only does he rescue his people from slavery, but most interestingly, this God has a name. Did you know the God of the Bible has a name? And it's not God. Anyone know what his name is? What's God's name? Anybody know? I've heard like, eh, I've heard something. So, so we kind of know, right? If you, if you haven't heard of it, it, it's Yahweh. His name is Yahweh. Not about you, but in my tradition, when I grew up in the, my household, I was told, don't say that name. It's too holy to say. And that doesn't come from any, nowhere. There's actually a tradition to that. Because in the Bible, you will never see the word Yahweh in your Bibles. 
that name just doesn't appear. You know why? Because it was so holy that they didn't want to use that name in the Bible. So you will see uh, all time God in their Bibles, and that's actually the Hebrew word for Elohim. It's like a title. Like God is God. Um, there's another word called Lord, which is lowercase. That's Adonai, like Lord Almighty. But Yahweh is actually everywhere in your Bible. It's just coded. You know what the word is? It's L-O-R-D, all capitalized. Anytime you see that in your modern Bibles, that's actually in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. But it was so holy that the Jews didn't want to put Yahweh down. And what's really interesting is the word Yahweh, it appears 175 times in the book of Genesis. And appears way more in the book of Exodus. Way more to Elohim, way more to Adonai. Yahweh is the main way to describe God, except, except in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. You know, Exodus 1 and 2, Yahweh is not mentioned at all. All over Genesis, all over Exodus, except the first two chapters, it's not Yahweh, it is Elohim, God, or it is Adonai, Lord. Why? What happened? The author of Exodus tried to show us. Something between Genesis and Exodus happened. He was Yahweh, and then they forgot who Yahweh was. They forgot his name. He's just God, and now they're in trouble. They forgot his name. They only see God as Elohim. Imagine you go to a doctor's office, and when you meet the doctor, what do you call them? Doctor, right? That's their title. But imagine that doctor, she goes home, and she sees her husband. What does her husband call her? Not doctor. Calls her by her name. Because we call a doctor doctor because it is a formal and personal relationship where there's an exchange of goods. Versus the husband and wife, doctor, that's actually an intimate relationship. We call each other by names. And that's what was happening with Israel. God was a title. He was impersonal. He was far away. He's helpful. But one of the biggest reveals of Exodus is, no, no, God has a name. And he has to reveal his name again to this people. Because otherwise, you're just going to treat him like this functional God who's just nameless. And I think for a lot of us here, that's what's going on with us. We are so lost, and we believe in God, and yet God is only Elohim, or he's Adonai, this impersonal title. Versus God, he's like, no, no, I'm Yahweh. I got a name. Can you imagine, hey, you. Hey, you, yeah, you. It's like, I got a name, dude. And that just shows an impersonal relationship between us. This is what Exodus is about. Hey, God has a name and if you remember he has his a name it changes everything about the way we naturally relate to god if god has a name that means god he's not an impersonal force he's not a philosophy of life he's not a chapter in a systematic theology book he's a person and a person who wants to relate to his people a person that drives your emotions up and down when i see fish at the fish i have a fish tank when I see fish at the fish store, I'm like, I want that fish, that fish, that fish. And they come to my house. But once they come to my house, you know what we do? Your name's Lucy. Your name's Susie. Your name is Jack. And all of a sudden, it becomes way more, like, way more personal. Like, hey, Jack, hello. And then all of a sudden, when they die, I'm like, oh, Lucy died. And I just feel sad. Whereas when I see dead fish in the store, I don't care. What does name signify? This relationship, this tying of emotion that's there. You relate to people when they have a name, when they're a person. God is saying, this is how I want to relate to people. I am not just God, I am Yahweh. I have a name, and I want to relate to my people this way. And Exodus talks all about that. And if God is a person, that means God's going to relate to you and respond to you like a real person. 
He is not an algorithm that we just plug in. If I'm just faithful and I'm good and I go to church and I read my Bible and I avoid sex, and I, then blessings are going to come. And that's our normal paradigm of how we relate to God. And yet when you read Exodus, you realize God is unpredictable in many ways where he breaks the algorithm. There's a weird chapter in Exodus 33 where after God rescues his people, they do something messed up and God goes, I'm going to destroy all of them. All the Israelites. And you're like, wait, I thought God is a God of love and compassion. Dude, you can't put God in a box like that. He's a person. And yet at the same time, Moses later in the chapter goes, God, don't do it, man. Don't do it. And they had this conversation. God goes, well, well. And they just go back and forth. And then all of a sudden, God doesn't destroy them. Moses, it almost looks like he changed God's mind. You're like, what in the, like, what is going on here? If you are set with a certain view of God, that story does not make sense to you. Because God, he is someone who is dynamic, he is not static, he is not a formula, he is a person, he has a name. And the main question is, do you treat God that way? Do you relate to God in a way where he wants to relate with you in this dynamic way, where your relationship with him looks radically different than every other person because you are radically different, even though he's leading all of us to the same goal, which is to be more and more like Christ? And yet the journey there just looks radically different because you're relating with a person in the midst of this journey. Exodus asks us, do you have a relationship with God, that type of God? And so, going back to the very beginning, when you imagine God, what kind of person is he? What do you visualize about God? Exodus every week is meant to provide a story to reimagine who God is. Because we naturally turn to these false gods, these idols, these gods made in our own image. And that's why we don't change. That's why we look exactly the same like we did five years ago. But Exodus tells us every week, come learn who this God is and see your life slowly begin to change. Because what matters most is not that you believe in God, but what do you believe about God? And so before we take a moment to pray, can I pray for us as a church and pray for us as we begin this journey through Exodus? Let's all pray. Father in heaven, I lift up our church to you. I know everyone here, for the most part, so many of us, we grew up in the church. A lot of us here, we're here because we believe in you. And yet, God, I know for a lot of us here, our lives look radically different than what we, it seems like it's supposed to be. Because what we believe about you, Lord, is probably filled with so many different images and ideas. And so I just pray, may we relate to not just God, but the living God, the God of the Exodus, the God who reveals himself to us, the God, O oh Lord, who wants to relate to us. Help us, O oh Lord, to come before you this way, to come with open hearts, to reconstruct our view of you so that we ourselves can also be reconstructed by your spirit. In your son's name, amen.